Good evening. Is the apocalypse coming? I know, what a question. Well, Andrew Bailey, the Governor of the Bank of England, suggested yesterday, talking to MPs in committee, that there was an apocalypse coming, and he was referring specifically to food prices. And when it came to inflation, he said, don't blame us, Gov. Not our fault. Nothing to do with us whatsoever. No, it's all to do with Ukraine. We obviously couldn't predict a war in Ukraine. Now, the key role of the Bank of England since it was given its independence in the late 1990s is to control inflation and they have a target of 2% to stick to and no one's pretending for a moment that all of this is easy. But I'll tell you what, I've been saying since last January that it was pretty clear that inflationary signs were growing within the economy. But oh no, not the Governor of the Bank of England. He told us it wasn't happening. And then when it did start to rear its head in the summer of last year, well, once again, don't worry your poor little heads. It's just transitory. And now it's happening, it's all the fault of Vladimir Putin. Well, the truth of it is, even before the invasion of Ukraine, inflation was well set. And the governor has bungled. Andrew out to lunch Bailey, as he was known in his time in the city, and particularly when he ran the FCA, and did, by all accounts, a pretty poor job. I was disappointed in the extreme when he was appointed as Bank of England governor. But is he right to say an apocalypse is coming in terms of food prices. Well, Archie Norman, the chairman of Marks & Spencer, estimates that food prices will rise by 10% this year. And it's difficult for me to sit here and to promise you there won't be shocking rises in food prices. There may well be. There's certainly an even bigger risk, perhaps, for households when it comes to energy. But tell me, what do you think? Is an apocalypse coming? Farage at GBNews.com. UK. Well, joining me to discuss the governor and these extraordinary comments is Vicky Price, chief economist at the CEBR. Vicky, I can't think of a governor of the Bank of England, certainly in my lifetime, following economics and politics, using a word like apocalypse. It's pretty extraordinary, isn't it? It's really interesting because he's not the only one who's using words like that. The World Bank itself said very recently, that was the head of the World Bank in fact, talking about a potential human catastrophe uh, because of the food price increases. And what they've done is they've set up a special fund, which is at present $170 billion, to use to, for the poorer nations, which of course are right now the ones that are worst affected. And it's interesting we talked about you know, the price increases that Archie Norman was uh, referring to, yeah. um, which are by comparison to how fast food prices are going up across the world, pretty modest. And if you look at food inflation right now, it's at around 6%. So what's been going on is that they haven't been passing those supermarkets on all the costs of the extra uh, prices they have to pay themselves in terms of the ingredients they're putting into their food, which they sell to us. So for the moment, yes, of course, it is very significant by comparison to where we were just a few months ago, uh, but it isn't apocalyptic yet in no. terms of what the consumer has to pay. We know that Ukraine is very important in terms of wheat production. I think 80% of the sunflower oil that we use in this country comes from Ukraine. Odessa, of course, they're having, I mean, mm. they, they've got stocks they can't safely get out. I do understand all of this. I'm not downplaying the difficulties, but I still think it's a very irresponsible, somewhat fear-mongering word for someone like that to use. And I, I, I suggest to you that he's doing it to cover up for his own incompetence in terms of managing inflation and getting all his predictions wrong. 
Yes, but if you look at what the CPI has been doing recently, which is the consumer price inflation, which of course has been rising, as you rightly have been saying, for some time, but now really rather fast, the major components there are food prices, even though, yes, 6% food price increase is quite significant as part of the overall CPI, and energy. So those are the two areas that have been rising. Both of those are external factors. So you can forgive him for using those words because the reality is that he's not the only central bank who's been uh, you know, affected by this. We've seen the Federal Reserve in the US. We have seen the European Central Bank, which hasn't even raised interest rates yet, although it's promising to do so. It will. They all, of course, they, they all have been... Yes, OK, perhaps they didn't quite expect that increase, but they, they've all been surprised by what's been happening and unable to react because if you raise interest rates here or even if you restrict the amount of money that's in the economy in reality you're going to be hitting all those people whose main you know spending is food and energy and those are not yeah. really going to suddenly I'm, start coming down because you've raised interest rates i completely understand external shocks you know the yom kippur war of 1973 led to the price of oil tripling in short order that was a genuine external shock but there is also monetary inflation there is also you know what's happened ever since 2008 with quantitative easing and particularly during the pandemic the government has massively increased the money supply so there's more money in circulation chasing the same number of goods and services and perhaps unsurprisingly shortages and rising prices and the governor of the bank of england the point i'm making to you on the economics of it is the governor of the bank of england has misread this right the way through and is not acknowledging his responsibility here well again i would say that uh, the increase in this uh, monetary liquidity has been pretty widespread so you've seen huge increases in quantitative easing as we call it which yeah. is basically uh, the the bank of england buying government bonds in the secondary market we saw that as you rightly said during the financial crisis and now of course with covid and the reason why we needed to do that is because the economy was dropping and if you remember we had deflation for a while so prices were falling i mean Oil prices were negative for a while, which is quite an extraordinary situation to find yourself mm, in. Mm, now, if, if, the mon if the monetary authorities, like the Bank of England, like the ECB, European Central Bank, like the, the, the Federal Reserve in the US, if they hadn't intervened and, and used all that money to buy those bonds in the secondary market, there wouldn't have been investors wanting to buy them. So what they've been doing, basically, is financing the government's fiscal side. And that's been pretty good for the economy, because otherwise we wouldn't be talking no, no, where I we mean, are now. I mean, we know what they've done, but it's the fact they're not admitting their own role in this. I mean, finally, Vicky, do you think this guy is the right guy to be the governor of the Bank of England? Well, the interesting thing about the Bank of England is that, particularly on interest rates and monetary uh, policy generally, there is an independent body or the, the, the mm. Monetary Policy Committee which decides this. And the role of the governor is to vote one way or another at the end of the day and maybe swing the vote if necessary. But of course he's responsible for all sorts of other things like financial stability. So, you know, the banks, are they operating? Is the market operating properly? Um, the person you put there has quite a, a, a range of things under him. And oh, there are I loads of very strong people. But is he any who, good? Well, whatever you may think of is him. Is he any good, Vicky? I think he's been doing the right thing so far. All right, well, Vicky Price, thank you. She's always so polite. I think he's hopeless. I think there were far better candidates. I really, really do. But there we are. Now, law and order and whether we should arm our police officers or not is one of those debates that goes on and on and on. And we've historically in this country done our very best not to arm our police officers too much. 
uh, but times have changed. And of course, tasers are quite commonly used. About 30,000 times a year, uh, tasers are used by police officers in this country. Well, now there's a proposal coming from the Home Secretary, Priti Patel, and the idea is that our volunteer, our specials, will be able to use tasers, provided they've had the right degree of training. Now, Amnesty International and others are screaming blue murder, saying this is all wrong. Others are saying we can't trust the police as far as we can throw them. I have to say, for my part, um, if I was giving up my free time to go and help police and perhaps be called in to deal with street protests, riots, um, in a, I have to say, a country with an increasing level of street violence, uh, I think I'd want a taser. I certainly do. Now, joining me is Chris Phillips, former head of the National Counterterrorism Security Office and managing director of the International Protect and Prepare Security Office. Chris, good evening. Good evening, Nigel. It's, it's always difficult, isn't it? You know, when I go to America, I see police officers with guns everywhere and a lot of killings that take place every year and it leads to all sorts of disputes. And we've generally not wanted to overarm our police officers, I think. Um, I mean, would that be a right description of, of the British attitude towards policing? Yeah, quite right. And uh, I think actually most police officers wouldn't want to be armed. Uh, arming police officers just brings more guns into society and that's not a good thing. But there's got to be some way of dealing with the, the, the very violent situations that officers are now finding themselves in, in particular in the inner cities. Now, in my day, I, I could pretty much rely on people to support me in the police. Now, unfortunately, the people are actually setting on the police in groups. And that's, that's a really <coughs> difficult position for officers to be in. We saw a situation over the weekend in Dalston in East London, uh, where a group of police officers were going to arrest some people who were in the country illegally uh, with the aim of getting them deported. Um, and yet the public on the streets or political activists or whoever they were physically turned against the police officers. So I mean, I completely understand what you're saying. Now, it is true, of course, that with these 30,000, uh, you know, every year, 30,000 times a, a taser is used, uh, you know, there were 16 people that died. Now, it is also true to say they all had pre-existing conditions. Uh, but do you understand the concerns of what are seen as volunteer police officers having tasers? Yeah, very much so. I, you, I mean, the difficulty is we're asking these uh, volunteers, normal members of the public, to go out onto the streets to act as uh, normal police officers. You know, at a time actually when policing has become much more difficult, much more complicated than ever before, and, and they're having to deal with very difficult situations. Now, if we're expecting them to do that, then you should give them the tools to do the job. And I think what Priti Patel has done here is, is actually say to chief constables, if you think your people are able to deal with this and, and, and have the tasers, then they should. So it's the 43 individual police forces that will make this decision and to perhaps reassure our viewers and listeners, uh, these volunteers will have to reach a certain level of competence, won't they? Yeah, they will. And they will have had to have a certain amount of uh, training, obviously, the same training as the officers, standard officers. But also they will be expected to have done uh, a certain amount of uh, policing. I think my biggest concern on this is that w we do have a situation where policing is getting more complicated. Uh, special constables, whatever, you know, and we love them to bits, but actually they cannot do and get the amount of experience. It takes a long, long time to do that. So we've got to be a little bit careful about treating them as normal officers, uh, but they also have to be protected. And I think this is a good move. Why is the level of public trust in police falling 
the way that it is? I think uh, uh, policing has been politicised. I think policing back from Theresa May's day and David Cameron absolutely messed up with bringing in PCCs, police crime commissioners. They've actually politicised the police. And actually then it does look as though one side is against the other, whichever side you're on. And of course, all the, all the different things that we've had split in society as well, at a time when people just don't respect authority anymore. So it's and not just the police? It's not just the police, is it? I mean, we know that wow. uh, the ambulance drivers are getting assaulted, fire brigade are getting uh, assaulted. We, we, we've got teachers that seem to be unable to teach certain children because they are just so unruly. And I think, you know, it does come down to our society and what we've allowed ourselves to be. And, and, and actually, we should be supporting the police as much as we can to do the job that, that's becoming more and more difficult. Well, Chris Vince, I can show you, I certainly am doing that. And on that point of societal breakdown, of course, just disgusting behaviour, I thought, disrespectful behaviour, whatever your view, at the FA Cup final at the weekend, a section of Liverpool supporters, you know, booing the national anthem, jeering Prince William, a former, a former, a future rather, king of this country. They should be delighted that someone like William is taking such a prominent role in football. But no, we are seeing in our cities a degree of societal breakdown. It is disturbing. It is worrying. I often think, actually, parts of our modern-day cities are frankly diseased. In a moment, we will talk not just about Liverpool football fans. We'll talk about a frontline footballer coming out as gay and being lauded as a hero. But do we care? Surely we're more interested in what he does on the pitch. Is the Governor of the Bank of England right? Is it apocalypse now when it comes to food prices? I think he has over-exaggerated this enormously and spread fear where it didn't need to be spread. Your thoughts on it coming through. One viewer says, people must not put their eggs in one basket. There are other countries outside the EU that government can buy from. Well, that's certainly true. I do also wonder how the rewilding plan is going. You know, where we pay farmers not to produce food, but to produce environments where the wolf or the beaver can come back to the British landscape. I hope those plans are being put on hold. Sorry, Carrie. Sorry, Goldsmith family. But I think perhaps food security, rather like energy security, needs to become an issue. Another viewer says it will get a whole lot worse if Johnson & Truss annoy the EU enough I thought Brexit was meant to make food cheaper. That is a really good and a very fair point. And the argument for cheaper food with Brexit is that foods and goods coming in from outside the European Union were subject to tariffs, subject to taxes. And therefore, by leaving the EU, we could buy those goods at much cheaper prices. And that includes wine, cut flowers and many other things. Um, truth of it is... We haven't done enough of that since Brexit, although I do think we're on our way. Joe says, yes, we are. Joe thinks we're headed towards a food apocalypse. Well, maybe she's right. And Wayne says, everything that is happening could have been avoided if the government had acted sooner and not 
party their way into oblivion, you know. We can, we can blame the Downing Street get-togethers and the beer-ups that took place in Durham, uh, but I don't think they're responsible for all of our ills, even though some of you are very angry about them. Although I noticed in Hull last week when we were out there with Farage at large that most people, frankly, have become just a little bit bored with Partygate. But let me tell you what they're not bored with, and that is scandal. That is sleaze, and it's been a tough time. The truth is, for both parties, both the Conservative and Labour Party have had a difficult time with sleaze, uh, with some really terrible accusations and indeed convictions over the course of the last couple of years. But the story that broke just a couple of hours ago is bigger than any of those stories, potentially. In fact, bigger than almost anything any MP that I can think of, certainly in my lifetime, has ever been accused of. It would be, if we had the name of the MP, the top story today, but it's not. But to bring us up to speed with this development is Darren McCaffrey, our political editor. Darren, what's happened? Well, and it's not the top story because obviously there are certain things we can and cannot report yeah. at this stage because there is an active criminal investigation underway. So first of all, let me talk you through what the Met have at least said, as you say, in the last hour or so. And they say that a man in his 50s has been arrested on suspicion of indecent assault, sexual assault, rape, abuse of position of trust and misconduct in public office. So quite a, a litany of allegations uh, there. The offences are said to have occurred in London between 2002 and 2009, and that uh, officers are now from the Central Specialist Crime Unit looking into this. The MP involved is currently in custody. So he's been arrested? He's been arrested. In custody, but in custody, not yet charged. And not yet uh, charged. Now, the reason we know he's an MP is because at the same time as the Met were issuing that statement. We also got a one from the Tory chief whip, the Conservative chief whip, Chris, Chris Heaton harris uh, and he says uh, that the MP concerned has been told not to attend the parliamentary estate, essentially to stay away from that place across the road while the investigation is ongoing. But the expectation, uh, and of course this is also partly the reason that, that the man remains unnamed, we do live in a system where you're innocent until proven guilty, yeah, yeah. is that the Conservative Party will not remove the whip until those investigations are concluded. But, you know, it's a pretty serious litany of allegations. Yeah, um, and we're not prejudging anything here at GB News, and you're quite right, you know, presumption of innocence before guilt and all the rest of it is a vital part of what this country is. But I want to say this to you, I don't, I can't remember an MP being arrested on a charge of rape. This is the first time, isn't it? Um, well, of course, we had Imran Khan um, not that long ago who uh, was convicted of it, and it's now going to be a by-election in Wakefield. that wasn't Wakefield. a specific charge of rape, was it? Uh, no, and, and, and you're right, this is a very serious... And it's not just that. I mean, this is a very serious uh, set of allegations over the space of seven years, it must be said, as well, uh, dating back quite a long time. And, and you're right, you know, as I say, we have to wait until the police investigation yeah. concluded, but there will be uh, concerns that are yet again, even these allegations will taint that place across the road and people's perception at, at a time in which public opinion, it must be said, of politicians, given a whole series of scandals, is pretty low. Yeah, and we have had. I mean, I, you know, it, this, is, this feels like 1996 all over again. You know, the Back to Basics campaign and endless, endless sleaze allegations coming out about Conservative members of Parliament. But Labour are suffering with this too, aren't they? Yeah, they are. We know, for example, Liam Byrne, uh, the former Chief Secretary of the Treasury under... 
uh, Gordon Brown. I mean, he got suspended from Parliament uh, for bullying for a couple of days. So that it's fair to say this is not confined to one political party. Peter MP, you know, she had to go. Indeed, and obviously the Conservatives got a lot more MPs. Possibly the why that yes. weighs, weighs more heavily in terms of uh, the number of allegations against that. But I think what this is, not this particular story, but I think in general what we have seen really since the start of the year, uh, and there are suggestions, and we've seen this reported elsewhere, uh, that you know there are concerns and allegations about other MPs, including senior MPs. Well, the Sunday Times suggested that up to 56 people... Yeah, there is dispute about that. <coughs> there is dispute about that and just kind of what on the scale of those 56 are. I mean, clearly there's a big difference between rumour and gossip uh, right through to MPs being arrested, for example, or indeed charged or convicted. So I think that, that that's a very wide basket, if, yeah. you, if you get what I mean. But fundamentally, this is going to raise lots and lots of questions, not just for political parties and how they manage their politicians, how they frankly select some of their candidates uh, coming into the next elections. The feeling, and this was reflected actually by Mark Spencer, the leader of the House of Commons, that some of the MPs that may well have ended up in the 2017-2019 intake because of the quickness of those elections, that the due diligence uh, wasn't done, uh, though we're not suggesting that, of course, any new intake of MPs has been involved in any wrongdoings, more with the calibre of MPs, if you get it, but also for Sir Lindsay Hoyle, uh, the Speaker of the House of Commons, about what goes on across the road and what goes on in Parliament. Um, we don't know, obviously, whether what's gone on here has got no. any connection to Parliament. It happened a very long time ago, over a period of seven years. It did happen in London. But yes, it is a reminder that that is an unusual place in which unusual things uh, happen, in which MPs, frankly, are going to have to sort out what happens in politics, because at the moment, as I say, the place is marred in scandal, frankly, and public opinion of MPs, and of that place, the heart of our democracy, is not at a great level. Yep. You're absolutely right, and I would also say, you know, the, the, the public opinion of the House of Lords, not just the House of Commons, mm. and the public increasingly don't like the House of Lords. Final quick thought, Darren, whilst you're here. May the 5th has come and gone. The Conservatives lost about one in four seats they were defending across the country. It's sort of, as the Friday went on, it just got a bit worse and a bit worse and a bit worse as we got the results in. Yeah, particularly from Scotland and Wales, Scotland, of course. Scotland and Wales, yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, but is Boris Johnson looking relatively secure? Yeah, I think he is in many regards. <coughs> um, we have to remember, though, of course, and that is because of expectation management. There are MPs who are very concerned about this. We saw Jeremy Hunt, for example, at the weekend doing a tour of the Sunday studios, making it clear that this is not great for lots of MPs, particularly in the south of England, having lost seats. So he's being really helpful. Devs. <laughs> Indeed, yes. Some might suggest he may want to run again no, at some never. point, God forbid. Um, but I think ultimately we still have got a few tricky periods for the Prime Minister down the line. Sue Gray's report, potential of more fixed penalty notice fines for him and others inside uh, Downing Street. Um, but ultimately, and you've just been talking about it, there is little doubt that the biggest issue that potentially will decide the future of the Prime Minister and the Conservative Party is this cost of living crisis, about trying to get it right, trying to get that balance right that you and I talk about, about trying to not make things worse mm. by spending loads of money that you're just making domestic inflation worse, but at the same time trying to help those that clearly need it. And it boils down to, you know, the old cliche of it's the economy, stupid. And while, frankly, if Partygate doesn't unseat Boris Johnson, and that seems unlikely now, you're right, voters seem quite bored of the issue, mm. at least at the moment, mm. is that in two years' time, if there is an election, if people feel a hell of a lot worse off, if they feel that their standards of living have dropped... That is a real issue. Who gets the blame for that? Normally, in normal political times, it's the government. Yeah, absolutely. Darren, thank you very much indeed. Well, a pretty serious situation. We'll see what unravels over the course of the next few days. But for an MP 
to be arrested with that long list of very serious charges and held. It's quite a development. Now, a what the Farage moment. It's 30 years ago that Justin Fashionew, who was playing for Norwich, came out as gay. And there's been no prominent footballer over the course of the last 30 years that has come out as gay. Now, it may well be uh, they feel the fans would give them a hard time. I do understand that. But what I find pretty extraordinary is the Blackpool Football Club player, Jake Daniels. Now, this is a 17-year-old, clearly a very, very talented young lad. Uh, you know, he's already in youth football, scored a lot of goals. The player has got real, real ability. Uh, and he's come out as gay. <coughs> and to look at the reaction from the British media, I mean, he is being hailed as a hero. You know, there it is. It's the top of the Times. It's the front page of the Independent. It's the front page of the Eye. And this is the big story. He's a hero because he's come out as gay. Well, it may be a brave thing to do, given that nobody else has over the course of the last 30 years. Well, undoubtedly, some could. But I wonder whether we're getting our priorities right. You know, we're talking here about a footballer. We should judge him on what he does on the pitch. And frankly, I'm not really interested in his private life. I'm not really interested in what his religion is. I just don't care. I'm just not interested. And I bet you, I bet you that amongst most football fans, the vast majority of football fans, that is the case. Yes, there will always be some on the terraces shouting and jeering and saying unpleasant things whether it's to footballers like this or whether it's the disrespect shown to Prince William and Her Majesty the Queen. But I just think if we treat somebody as a hero for coming out as gay, I wonder whether we've got just a very, very odd and somewhat warped sense of priorities. I wish him luck. I wish him well. I hope he doesn't get too much abuse from the stands. I really don't think, by the way, that he will. And let's hope he goes on to have a great football career. But that is how we should judge people. That certainly is my view. Now, you've got to go out and buy an electric motor car. It's absolutely vital. Everyone's telling you to do it. You can save the planet. Now, these cars are very expensive, though there are some quite good tax breaks if you've got enough money to buy one. But there is a problem, and it is the number of chargers. Now, unless we increase monthly installations by a whopping 350%, we are not going to meet the 2030 target. In fact, we're lagging terribly. We need to put in 3,000 new installations a month, and currently we're putting in just over 600. Um, it's not working. There was a, a journalist, Ian Dale, gave a report of a journey he had back from the north of England to Kent. It should have taken him four hours. It took him nearly 11 hours because he just couldn't find a charging station. And a friend of mine has just splashed out a lot of money buying a new electric black cab. And he is struggling like crazy in the middle of the day in central London to find any charging points that are free. So it's all well and good to encourage us to use electric cars. But without the infrastructure, frankly, it just cannot and will not work. And I wonder whether we, uh, the government maybe rethink some of their enthusiasms. Now, one other little story, which I think is shocking. We don't know the name of the school, but a girl 
challenged a speaker. A speaker from the House of Lords came to a school to talk about trans issues. And this particular girl argued that biological sex is real. And this was after being lectured about transphobia. And what transpired next is truly shocking. She was afterwards surrounded by 60 of her friends who screamed endless nasty abuse at her for daring to challenge the orthodoxy. And she actually collapsed as a result of it. And she's not really going back to school anymore. And, and I just, this is so disturbing and so worrying. We should allow people to have different opinions without screaming and shouting at them. It is wrong. Let's have a piece of really good news. So much speculation about Her Majesty the Queen as she did not attend the state opening of Parliament. And then over the weekend, we saw some quite happy pictures of the Queen. There she was at the Windsor Horse Show. Well, today, I think this was a bit of a surprise for most people. Today, she turned up to launch the Elizabeth Line. This is a new tube line running right across from Reading right out through the east of London. Now, it's been somewhat expensive at £19 billion, and it was meant to open uh, five years ago, but at last it's opened, unlike Crossrail. And Her Majesty the Queen turned up at Paddington Station to do the unveiling. The Queen took everyone by surprise when she suddenly appeared at Paddington Station. People may have complained about the delayed Crossrail project, but it was all smiles as Boris Johnson and the Mayor for London, Sadiq Khan, welcomed the monarch and her youngest son. Her Majesty looked round the station entrance to the Elizabeth Line, which has been appropriately designed in royal purple. She also met train drivers and station staff and unveiled a plaque to mark the completion of the project. The Elizabeth Line runs from west to east and officially opens next Tuesday. And should the Queen wish to visit again, she was given her own oyster payment card. Despite recently struggling with her mobility, the 96-year-old went to the Windsor Hall Show on Friday and on Sunday was the guest of honour at an equestrian event near Windsor. But today is the first engagement that the Queen has been to outside of the Windsor area since she attended the Duke of Edinburgh's memorial service in Westminster Abbey seven weeks ago. With only two weeks to go until the Platinum Jubilee weekend, it seems as if everything is on the right track. Alice Porter, GB News. Well, wasn't that great to see the Queen out there doing those duties? That really cheers us all up, I think, for the Jubilee, which is not too far away. And she was able to top up an Oyster card. Rishi Sunak didn't know how to use a credit card, did he? Hey, in a moment, I'm going to be joined on Talking Pints by a genuine broadcasting legend, Dame Jenny Murray. For 33 years, she presented Woman's Hour. We're going to ask her about women's issues, trans issues and much else. Welcome back. Yes, it's Talking Pints. It's that time of the day now in the immediate after World War II period. The BBC came up with a programme called Woman's Hour and someone that presented it for a remarkable 33 years. I think she does actually genuinely qualify as a broadcasting legend is Dame Jenny Murray and I'm very pleased to say she joins me for Talking Pints. Now, I have never drunk a pint in fact, I don't like beer. So what I opted for was a vodka 
and very slimline tonic. <laughs> and this is the first time in my entire broadcasting career that I have sipped alcohol with a microphone on me. So cheers. Cheers. <laughs> this is a whole new experience. Mm. Well, mm. very nice. Is it well made? Yes. Good. Very well made with ice and lemon. Perfect. Couldn't be better. Well, you see, GB News is here to do things a little bit differently, and that's what we do. It really interesting to think. 1946, this new program comes along, which must have been sort of, in a way, quite radical for its day. It was very radical. What was really radical about it was it was presented by a man for the first few months, and there were lots of complaints from women saying, hmm. Why do we have to have a man broadcasting to us about these kind of subjects? People assume that in those early days it was very soft and it was all about knitting and cooking. But it wasn't. Not true. Absolutely mm. not true. Um, you know, there were lots of discussions about my job, what kind of job can I do, how easy is it going to be for me to work... There was a whole series about the menopause. You know, everybody's up in arms at the moment about the menopause. Mm. Oh, my goodness, we can't get our HRT. 1946, Woman's Out was yeah. talking about it. And you were a young girl growing up in Barnsley in the 1950s and this, in pro this programme... In 1950. And so my mother always used to say, you know, there was a very strict feeding schedule in those days, four hourly. And two o'clock in the afternoon, which is when the programme used to be broadcast, was broadcast at that time for years and years and years. Mm. And my mother always used to say, ah, now, uh, I'd been busy in the morning, I'd done the washing, I'd cleaned up the kitchen, I'd prepared the cake for your dad when he was coming home. Uh, and two o'clock, I sat down to listen to Woman's Hour and I fed you at two o'clock. So clearly... I was raised. It was meant to be. I was raised on <laughs> It was meant to be. Absolutely. And you, you know, you, you obviously do well at school and university, but you decide that broadcasting is what you want to do. I thought I wanted to act, you know, from being very small. My mother, for which I am eternally grateful, sent me for what are normally called elocution lessons. My teacher called them speech and drama lessons. Mm -hmm. But it did teach me how to use my voice and all that sort of thing. And I loved always being in the school play. In fact, my maths teacher, who told me to leave her class in the fourth form because she, her, her name was Mrs. Aviard. And those of us who were not very good at maths called it Aviard's Graveyard, un, <laughs> unsurprisingly. And she was standing at the front of the class and she put a calculus question to me. And I was completely befuddled. And she said, Jennifer Bailey, I was Jennifer Bailey in those days, have you been learning poetry again and performing in the school play? And I said, yes. Mm. She said, yes, is this the reason why your mathematics is so appalling? I cannot understand why a girl of your obvious intelligence is so hopeless. I suggest you drop the subject, which panicked me because I thought, well, I'm not going to get into university. So I went to talk to the headmistress about it and she said, look, if you do a science, you'll be all right. In those days, you didn't have to... In those days, mm. it was a long time ago. <laughs> you didn't have to do maths if you did biology, physics or chemistry. I did biology, walked it. Good it for you. Fine. But so then, I got in. But then in many ways in life, the great skill is to find what we are good at and then we can love what we do. And I think so many people go through life and never find the thing they're good at. And I have to say, whoever did the elocution lessons or speech and drama, well, 
What a job they did. I mean, the late Charles Wheeler, and another great broadcaster, said that you had the most beautiful voice on radio ever. I know. It's quite I an loved accolade, him. isn't it? I, I knew him when I worked on Newsnight. I, I worked on Newsnight before I went to the Today programme and then on to Woman's Hour. And, and Charles was the most charming and also... The, you know, I was a young journalist suddenly working on a big national programme, Newsnight, and it was terrifying, absolutely terrifying. And Charles was always there to help. He was really kind, and if I was stuck on trying to get some writing right, he would come and help me. He was just... He was, he was a proper gent, wasn't he? Absolutely. A proper gent, a beautiful writer, and he also had an extraordinarily beautiful voice. And, of course, father-in-law for many, many years. Yes. To the current Prime Minister, which... Correct. Not many people No know. longer. No. <laughs> so, I, I mean, Jane, you go her. on. Oh, I'm sure I shouldn't you, have said that. You, go, <laughs> you know, you go on, you know, and, and, and you take the helm of this programme, you know, which was already incredibly well-established, had been around for just over 40 years, um, and you stay there for 33 years. I mean, did you love doing it? Did it become... Did you feel it was you in the end? I absolutely loved it. You know, I would wake up in the morning and think, how did I get to be so lucky? Because, did you really? Yeah, I really did. Because the programme covered everything I would have been interested in anyway. You know, the books I wanted to read, the plays I wanted to see, the music I wanted to listen to. And then it also, because I got a lot of current affairs experience after having worked on Newsnight, we covered politics and current mm. events I and know. everything. I know. Yes, I know you know. <laughs> I know. I mean, I've... Yes, we have had an encounter, yes, I think, yes. at some point. Yes, I appeared on your programme and, yeah, it was good. I mean, it was interesting, wasn't it? Because... You know, the way that you did politics, as it were, as it was perhaps in a much gentler manner than perhaps a Paxman would or someone like that. People but, but, might but suggest that it was gentler. Mm. Um, but In style. Uh, in style. Mm. But uh, I always got underneath it. Yeah. Uh, the way to do it, I often think, is to lull people, which you might be doing now, into a false sense of security, and then the killer question. Well, you did it very, very well. And Thank women's you. issues, I mean, the, the, you must be very proud of being part of that. And it's been a movement, really, hasn't it? It's not, it's not a left or right issue, a movement that women have advanced in society through it those has, years. And we are currently at a very worrying moment. Yes, I know you've spoken out already on this trans issue, which seems to get, uh, for many people, uh, more confusing by the day. Uh, I think the American swimmer, Leah Thomas, you know, somebody who'd gone through male puberty, six foot three, big hands, is 550th ranked man in the world, and suddenly, as a woman, is winning everything, and people are very confused and very concerned, and you might have heard earlier, I did a little, little report about... About the little girl in school. I mean, this is I horrifying. read about that this morning in the papers. It is absolutely horrifying that a school allows a whole group of girls who've been persuaded by somebody mm. talking mm. about it's OK to be trans and, you know, biology doesn't matter and all of that nonsense that's coming out, and to allow a whole bunch of girls to attack a girl who says, no, hang on, 
biology does matter. There are two sexes. You can't change your sex. You can change your gender, but yeah. you can't change your sex. So many people, I think, have been confused about the difference between sex and gender. And that was really what made me cross the first time. I was one of the, the early ones to get into trouble for it. You know, people keep accusing me of being a turf, oh, yeah, yeah, a trans-exclusionary, yeah, yeah. radical feminist. I'll take the feminist. I won't take the radical. You know, a woman with a husband and two sons can't call herself a radical feminist, really, can she? Um, but... I am not trans-exclusionary by any... No, I mean, we're not talking here about intolerance toward, towards other no, people, are we? Not at all. What, what I became angry about was the suggestion that, number one, you could change your sex, um, you could stop referring to women as women and refer to them as period havers or bleeders or, you know, all those ridiculous things. Talk about breastfeeding as chest feeding. And I just thought, hang on, you can't change the language. You cannot erase women. Do you think there's a fight back now coming? Yeah. I feel it. Yeah, that, there is, definitely. Uh, the best thing was to, just before um, the election, the, the local elections, was the group who said, respect my sex if you want my ex, because we ain't going to vote for anybody who can't tell us what a mm. woman is. Mm. You know, we have to be I really think a, No, I think there is a fight back coming on this. I, I really, really do. And being such a public figure, you know, you've shared many things. I mean, you shared the fact that you had cancer, breast cancer, and you couldn't avoid sharing that, I suppose, because you were away. And you've dealt with that. And your, your most recent fight is against diabetes. Well, uh, it was against obesity, really. Yeah. I mean, I, I never became type 2 diabetic. I was teetering on the edge of type 2 diabetes. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I changed my doctor. I used to have a lovely woman, and, and she, like me, was fat. And she never said... Uh, it's time you lose, lose weight. I mean, my weight just went up steadily over the years as I dieted and stopped dieting. None of it worked. Uh, uh, dieting doesn't work because your, your body becomes very acutely aware of it's all the little hormones rushing around to your brain saying, oh my God, she's starving, she's starving, make her eat, make her eat, make... and you become terribly <laughs> hungry. It's a very complicated process. Um, but my new doctor, a man uh, who I love very much, uh, and he said, look, I really think it's time you did something about it. And I did. I had surgery mm. because I knew it was the only way because I dieted and not dieted, dieted and not dieted. And I thought, why ruin your life by constantly being on a diet? Because I actually quite enjoy food. Um, and so I had the surgery. And a very large proportion of my stomach was removed. Uh, and it was all quite frightening. Mm. But actually, after it was done, it wasn't frightening at all. Good. I've lost more than half my body weight. <laughs> well, well done, you. Yes. And you've now got a new Ukrainian family living with you, I understand. I have, yes. Oh, my goodness. Saturday night, 
I was invited to one of my very close friends' birthday parties. And I thought, okay, how do I handle this? Party starts 7.30. Eurovision Song Contest starts 8 o'clock. I have to be back home in time for the Ukrainian and the UK performances. So I left the party very early. And we all, the three of us, sat there. Mum, son, he's 17. And... Uh, and we watched it, and then, of course, that nightmarish count began. Mm, where, uh, where were they going to go? Were they yeah. going to go up? Were they going to go down? And the UK kept rising and we rising. We did well. What? We did well, didn't we? We did. Yeah. And uh, eventually, uh, we got to the stage where we were voting, and I said, "Well, I'm voting for Ukraine, so I voted for Ukraine." They said, "We will." Look. I said, "No, no, no, you can't. You're not allowed. You're Ukrainian." Yeah. yeah. So they voted for the UK. And we just sat there and cheered when Ukraine <laughs> won and we were second. And in the past, I've always got really cross when the voting has been very political. Oh, and, I know. You know. Eastern European countries have voted for well, each maybe other. Was, may, may, Greece may, maybe Brexit Britain's now been accepted. Maybe that's what it is. Well, I, I'm not going to talk to you about Brexit <laughs> at all, as you that's know. It's fine. We run out of time as anyway. You know. And I've avoided it. Uh, but the politics in this one was fine. Ukraine well, deserved it. I want to say thank you very much for coming on as my guest. Fascinating and well done for everything you've done in broadcasting. Brilliant. Dame Jenny, Cheers. thank you very much indeed. Again. Thank Cheers. You. We're coming towards the end of the programme, but it's always time for Barrage the Farage. We've got 60 seconds left. We'll ask Dame Jenny if she thinks Amber Heard, Colleen Rooney and Rebecca Vardy are feminist icons. Uh, no, actually, I, I, I haven't been watching the Amber Heard thing, uh, but I have been watching what's been going on here. Yep. And I've, my reaction to it was, oh, for God's sake, the bear of you, grow up. You're taking the position of women back 20 years, bitching at each other, being nasty to each other... Where's the sisterly solidarity? Well, I think that is I think that is absolutely right. And I tell you what, that's such a... I mean, I couldn't agree more. I, I can't bear reading this Wagatha Christie stuff every day in the newspapers. It is pretty awful. It is pretty petty. And I think a very good note on which to end this evening's programme. I'm going to be back with you tomorrow evening at the same time. And don't forget, I'm going to be in Aylesbury next Thursday. We've still got a few tickets left. If you want to come along to that live show, go to the GB News website.